You're listening to TIP. On this week's episode of the Investors Podcast, we have our mastermind discussion for the third quarter of 2020. For anyone not familiar with the format, each person brings one stock pick to the table and the rest of the group tries to provide valuable feedback and risks associated with the pick. The intent of these episodes is to provide the listener various ways to assess the strengths and weaknesses of trade ideas while also showing you some insights into the key metrics we look at when finding and selecting various trade ideas. So without further delay, let's go ahead and dive into this episode. You are listening to The Investor's Podcast, where we study the financial markets and read the books that influence self-made billionaires the most. We keep you informed and prepared for the unexpected. Hey, everyone. Welcome to The Investor's Podcast. I'm your host, Preston Pish. And as always, I'm accompanied by my co-host, Stig Broderson. And like we said in the intro, we're here with our Two great friends in finance, Toby Carlisle, Hari Ramachandra. Guys, welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I love doing this. The highlight of the quarter. <laughs> Hari, welcome back, buddy. Hey, thank you, Christian and Stig. All right. So, Stig, I'm going to throw it over to you for your pick because I find this to be very brave, smart, and I'm concerned all at the same time. <laughs> Go ahead. I want to hear this one. I'm happy you say that, Preston, because I am repitching Alphabet. Most people probably know it as, as Google, but the parent company that is Alphabet, which is primarily Google, but there are also a bunch of other businesses. I completely get where you're coming from here, Preston, because you know with the valuations we see right now, with the FANG stocks not looking to be able to be any more expensive, and still, you know, you can be surprised. Why am I repitching Alphabet? I pitched this back 1st November 2018 for the Q3 MassMart meeting. And since then, it has outperformed the, the market. It has returned 26% compared to the S&P 500 doing 12%. And I think it's a very different type of pick than Spotify that it did last week. It is a tech company, but it's a very different tech company. And going back to what Preston said before, I would like to argue here that it has a different downside protection than something like Spotify, but you probably won't see the same 50% soar as you saw with the last pick here since the last quarter. And one of the reasons why I really wanted to repitch the stock is that you know, being a value investor, we tend to learn to become contrarian and to think that we can be right even if the market is wrong. And I guess what I've experienced in my own investment career is that I've sometimes taken it too literally, too often thinking and for too long that if I had a different opinion than the market, it must be because I'm so much smarter and it just takes such a long time for the market to wise up. That approach is very expensive and opportunity cost because you could invest in something in a different and better business. And I also come to realize that often I just have to acknowledge that I was wrong and I have to move on with my life and you know sell that stock. So I sort of like wanted to to use that going into Alphabet because whenever I do see a stock that has outperformed the market like it's the case with Alphabet here, I really want to see if this is a chance to double down and see if my investment thesis has not been fully appreciated by the market and especially what we've seen here recently with a lot of great investors, definitely not including me, but a lot of great investors building stakes. I think the most famous stake here recently is Seth Klarman, just building a 5% stake in Google. This episode will come out August 15th, which is the new time for the 13F filing. So let's see what the so-called super investors are doing. I wanted to talk about another reason why I really wanted to repitch Google or Alphabet, so sorry if I use that interchangeably, is that over the past two years, Google have been breaking out a lot more detailed information for the business unit, including YouTube Cloud and many other of the units, specifically other bats. So there's a lot more information available that we didn't have the last time where I see that we can unlock a lot more value. But that was probably the longest introduction I've ever had. So let's go into the actual pitch. So if we look at how Google makes money, Google products are still the main source of revenue for Alphabet. The revenue compositions have gradually changed over the past few years, and Google search is now only 58% of the revenue. And part of that is that Alphabet has simply just changed the accounting, has broken out more separate units from that. So that is part of the explanation. But whenever you think how Google makes money, think about AdWords, think about AdSense. 
today, YouTube is 10% of revenue. This is a segment that has grown 33% year over year in Q1. It's only up 6% year over year if you look at Q2, but that also includes a lot of COVID-19. And then you have Google Cloud, you know, 7% of total revenue, but it's growing like 43% growth year over year. And then they have a bunch of smaller units typically categorized in other Google revenue, which includes YouTube non-advertising revenue and play, which is up 26%. And then they have other bats. Now, I usually give a more detailed explanation of the industry whenever I pitch a stock, which for Google still is online advertising, primarily through search. However, I did that last time in Q3 2018, and I'll make sure to link to that in the show notes. And in that space, not a lot has changed, and I'll get back to that because I actually think it's a good thing. But Facebook and Google still heavily dominates the space. Amazon has caught up a little, but they're still way behind the two giants. Let's talk about Google's moat. That comes in many different shapes and forms. Typically, talking specifically about search that still dominate the market with more than a 90% market share. And some of that mode simply comes from the brand recognition and people just going on Google for search by default. But interestingly, the mode of the most popular queries that Google has is really not doing a much better job than most of the competitors. However, where they really have a mode and why so many people use the service is also that 15 to 20% of the searches are so-called unique. And there's a huge difference there because Google has such a data advantage. So they get so much better search results on those queries. And speaking of data mode, I would like to emphasize that for a company like Google, it's not really only the vast amount of data, which in itself is a mode. Whenever it comes to the amount of data, there is a saturation point. So rather, I would say that it comes from the breadth of data of all the different platforms we have and how they're able to process that in a central spot. Because data is not just your input data, it's training data, it's feedback data, and you'll need all of that to maximize the value. And because of that, in many, but clearly not in all fields, Google really has a moat compared to most other companies, including some of the big tech companies. I think it was last time Hari introduced the term China-proofed and Corona-proofed. So... It was kind of interesting the way he looked at that. So I wanted to include that here in my pitch. And starting with China, there's a clear distinction between competing in the West and competing in the East. And if we do look at the Chinese giants like Tencent and Alibaba, and you can even say Baidu to some extent, talking specifically about search, even though that Tencent and Alibaba is sort of gearing up to make Baidu services less relevant because of what they're doing with their ecosystem, they would just have such a hard time competing with Google in the West. Just as we saw Google have major issues in China, by the way. One practical example is that for something like cloud, they're just not competing about the same type of customers. Like you just have some customers going to something like Amazon Cloud or Google Cloud or Microsoft products, and then completely different segment going after cloud in China and in the East. In terms of being Corona-proofed advertising, it is expected to decline a little. We are looking at around 5% in 2020, but still 30% up from 2019 to 2022. And I remember going back to 2018 that I was so concerned about what we're having with the next crisis. And I don't think we could have almost a more severe crisis than what we're facing right now. And given that advertising is probably the first thing that's being caught in the time of crisis, we have really seen advertisers feel the pain has been in conventional offline marketing and not in the online. I think it's quite astonishing to see the impact or the lack of impact for a company like Google. And from the perspective of a business owner, despite where you are in the market cycle, if you can track $100 in revenue from a $99 expense, it's still an easy decision to push through. And I kind of feel that's very important to understand whenever you look at something like Google's revenue and the sustainability from advertising. But before I go to the, to the valuation, I actually wanted to talk a bit more about some catalysts and, and sending that, some of that over to, to Hari. Because if you look at Google, you know, one of the big things that Dick did back in 2017 is that launched the AI first strategy. You know, I'll be the first one to say that you don't hear anyone talking about that they have a strategy never to use AI. So I do understand that it's a buzzword for many companies, more than actual strategy. And I wanted to see how that translates into, into Alphabet. Sunda Pichai said that we want our products to work harder for you in the context of your job, your home, and your life. And that was sort of like the framework we saw the new strategy around. We saw Google Assistant, which is one of many products that we saw around that time coming out. 
the strategy in itself doesn't really, I want to say, it doesn't clear the no test. Sorry, throwing that over to Hari. I'm curious to hear some of your thoughts about where you see some of Alphabet's revenue coming from in the future and what your more qualitative analysis say about Google and the disruption we're going to see from AI. Stig, this is a great conversation. And, and also your introduction covered all aspects of Google. And I do agree with you that for the next three to five years, at least, Google is well positioned. In terms of qualitative aspects of the business, I think they have really strong modes in terms of their search engine for now, at least. And of course, YouTube. They're also making great progress in Google Cloud, which is not talked about. It. They're like the third most popular cloud platform. I think they're making some good progress with Thomas Korean. However, there are some issues or concerns that I have with Google, and they are more for the longer term. Number one is the optionality factor that Google used to have, like how they came up with new businesses. Looks like all the pieces are now kind of baked in, except for the self-driving technology, which people don't really understand how to value, how it will change Google's uh, future revenue and their position. But there are some concerns in terms of what has happened in the past few years. I would say in the core business search, one of the developments that concerns me is Amazon stealing their lunch for the most lucrative search keywords. Because today, if I want to buy a product, I just go to Amazon directly, not Google it. Those were the ads that Google had the most, most expensive bits. So that's number one. Number two, in terms of their AI, TensorFlow was like one of the best, the way they launched it. But there are other open source and other platforms that have taken lead now. It reminds me of how Sun used to be back in the day when they were the one to come up with the best technologies. Like if you see today's operating system, especially anything that is Unix and Linux based operating system, a lot of the underlying technologies were actually pioneered by Sun, including Java, which they open sourced, but they were never able to capitalize on it. And there were other people who ate their lunch. And when I look at Android, when I look at some of the progress that Google has made in terms of open sourcing AI with TensorFlow. I don't say that Google is Sun, but it's kind of very similar. And finally, with Larry Page and Sergey Brin not at the helm, I miss them. There is a difference between a founder-led company and kind of, you know, executive hired hand leading the company. There is definitely a difference in terms of the vigor and vibrancy. But having said that, this is all for next 10 years. The concerns I have I would rather have Google in my portfolio than cash. That's how I would say. Yeah, I agree with you on the Google versus cash comment, Hari. I got two questions for you based on some of the stuff you were saying there. So the TensorFlow keys, which is the algorithm or the the code, the open source code that Google has for artificial intelligence, isn't the business model more to push them into Google Cloud for processing? So I'm kind of curious because your comment made it sound like other competitors are pushing developers into a different AI algorithm over TensorFlow. Is that because Google Cloud is too expensive relative to maybe using Amazon's artificial intelligence software and in, in their cloud computing? That's a great question, Tristan. I think it's not about whether TensorFlow is good. In fact, it's really great and sophisticated. And you're right. The way Google wants to capitalize on their TensorFlow platform is to expose it through their Google Cloud. What I see the problem with Google, and some of that is being corrected, is in general, their focus on coming up with the best and most sophisticated technology rather than focusing on the use case. For 90% of the customers or enterprises, they don't need all the bells and whistles that TensorFlow offers. Folks like Amazon Web Services and other companies are just good at identifying what the customer needs and offering those features through their cloud or platforms. And Google has been struggling in that. So that's the difference. Uh, the other question I had for you, Hari, was in the, the driverless car technology, the software, because I really don't know anything about where Google stands in that race. Would you say they're competitive? Who's the front runner? I'm kind of curious to hear your thoughts on some of that. Good question. And my knowledge here is also like murky. I wouldn't say I know who's the leader there, but there has been a divergent approaches that companies have taken. For example, Tesla, the approach of trial by error, I would say in a less sophisticated way, in the sense that 
they went from there are five levels in self-driving technology like if, if you're level five and that's what google is trying to aim at then your call, car is completely self-driven in all conditions you don't even need a steering wheel but there are what google decided to do is go for level five from the beginning and that's the reason they have been taking a long time so this might pay dividends in the future but companies like tesla and other startups took the approach of gradually progressing through the levels and then they're making good progress because in ai more about data than the algorithms nowadays the models can be really sophisticated but less sophisticated models can beat more sophisticated models with a lot of data and kai fully in his book ai superpowers kind of goes into details of why is the case and that's what is happening in in self driving so that's number one number two is they did have a early mover advantage but every year that goes by they're losing it bit by bit because there are many other companies getting into it so one argument or one option was that once they have the self driving technology they can come up with like uber or lyft or they can partner with lyft for example because they own some stake in lyft and then capitalize on that and that's how they can basically get the platform however with other companies also making sufficient progress i don't know whether it will be google will be a clear winner so it's really hard to say at this point yeah i just don't know how they could catch up with if you're saying in my understanding of how ai works is it is all about the data those training sets and and pushing the as much data through the model as possible and you look at what Tesla is doing and how much data they're capturing on all these different cars that are out there. I don't know how Google's going to possibly be able to replicate that with all the hours of and hours of driving that Tesla is able to capture. But stick my issue with this one, A it's a great company, obviously. Everyone everyone knows it's a great company when you look at the margins, they're fat. Top line the bottom line you're 21%, the top line keeps exploding higher. The macro environment, they're adding more fiat into the system. I mean, we just pumped five to six trillion dollars into the system. It seems like all that printing goes straight into these fang companies. My only concern is when I look at the chart, I mean it's it's straight parabolic. So <laughs> I'm looking at Toby, who's totally relaxed and on vacation, and we appreciate him being here with us, even though he's on vacation, but he's laying there and he's smiling and I'm I'm looking at Toby. Toby, what do you think of the valuation on this parabolic chart? Google is my favorite business. And so I was really happy to hear Harry's criticisms of it because I've kind of fallen in love with Google a little bit because I think it's such a spectacular business. It's like this automatic money machine with these gigantically fat margins. Anytime you go to use the internet, you're basically using Google. You go in through the Google search bar to find something. Google gives you its picture of the internet, directs you where to go. You know, if you're listening to music through YouTube or something like that, you're on Google. If you're using Gmail, you're on Google. All of these things that just capture so much of your life. I've got a Pixel phone, so I use a, a Google phone. There's no question that it's one of the best, if not the best business in the world. And I think the others are Favum. You know, I don't like FanMag. I like Facebook, Amazon, Alphabet, Apple, Visa, Microsoft, and MasterCard. I think they're the best businesses in the world. Everybody else thinks they're the best businesses in the world. I think they're expensive. They're sort of the cheapest one's probably Apple, and it's on like 27 times EV free cash flow. And then Google, similarly. I think the two challenges with them, I don't think with these businesses, they're the kind of businesses, it doesn't matter if you pay up. The worst that happens to you is it's sort of dead money for a decade. You don't go anywhere while the market goes somewhere, but you're not going to lose much money in them. The other thing is that Google's really controlled by three people. It's Sergey Brin, Larry Page, and Eric Schmidt. All of the other shares are basically non-voting. So you're at the whim of those three guys. So the two challenges, I think, for Google are, there's no question, it's one of the best businesses in the world. The two issues for it right now, I think, are the valuation. And I agree. It's like when you say you prefer it to cash, I interpret that as, you know, I wouldn't sell it. If I owned it, I wouldn't sell it here, but I wouldn't necessarily buy it here. I just like buy a startup position to track it or just watch where it goes to. So if it pulls back, I can buy more. And the other challenge is corporate governance. I mean, if you're worried about the way that it's governed, or you're worried about the way that it's run, there's really nothing that you can do. You're sort of along for the ride with those three guys. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Don't just ride the index. Seek to outperform it with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. 
Our friends at Corient provide wealth management services centered around you. Corient's goal is to exceed your expectations and simplify your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. They're one of the largest integrated fee-only U.S. registered investment advisors, and Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. They have extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. The teams at Corient put the collective power of their expertise into building you the custom wealth, investment, and family office solutions that can help you reach your holistic financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, speak with an advisor today at Corient.com. That's spelled C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. That's Corient.com. When Rain Wilson had a great idea, he turned to AT&T Business. They assured him no matter how out there his idea may be, they had his back. So he came up with this, a talking pillow designed to put you to sleep, backed by a reliable network in the only network with built-in security controls. And thus, Sleep With Rain was a hit. Take your business to the next level at business.att.com. That's business.att.com. All right, back to the show. I want to piggyback on what Toby just said. I completely agree with your comment. I don't know that I'm buying it here, but I'm watching it to buy it if I get an opportunity at a better price point. The one thing that I'm looking at from a momentum standpoint is the MACD. I'm looking at the daily and the weekly MACD for all of FANG. And it appears right now at the start of August 2020 that a lot of the FANG companies are all starting to really kind of, their momentum is starting to fizzle out. I'm curious whether in the third quarter, we're going to have another whiplash like we saw in uh, March, April timeframe, where there's some type of currency liquidity event that drops everything. We get a really violent correction and you get an opportunity to buy a company like this. That's where I'm looking at it today is amazing company. I think that you might have an opportunity to get it at a better price here in the coming quarter. I hope you can. And I guess I'm looking for that opportunity. So, Great comments. If I'm worried about anything, I'd like to get back to the valuation piece here a little. I'm definitely worried about Amazon. And you know, Hari, I think you kick this off by talking about you just go to Amazon now. You don't even start with Google. And you know, Google have been doing the Google shopping for quite some time. Now, after they included that into the search piece of it, it works a little better. It doesn't work as good as Amazon, but they have started to generate money from that. I guess the functionality of going into the Google Shopping universe is just not as interesting as, as doing Amazon. Where it really, for me, it might be that the ship has just sailed. The other thing is, is also that I'm thinking Google knowing so much about us, is there a way that they can do it indirectly? serve those ads to us or sell those products to us one way or the other. I think that's sort of like the important key, not thinking about the next three to five years, but more like the 10-year considerations that you talked about before, Hari. To me, it was very interesting whenever the CEO, Sundar Pichai, said that Google needs to be better like in the context of job, home, and life. And I think that statement is very inflation-proofed. Now, I'm not one of those people who are thinking that we're going into something like hyperinflation or anything like that. All of that being said, I do see a lot of money being put into the system, and I'm not completely sure what's going to happen. It's actually a very Warren Buffett way of looking at it whenever you talk about inflation. Where is that value coming from? And, and if you can do that, to me, that in itself is an extremely value-inflation-proofed system. Whatever you want to call that, or and whenever the macro environment says. I guess for me, going to the piece about valuation, I don't really see a product or service that will replace advertising as the main source of revenue, but I do see multiple minor streams that might combined make a huge difference. And most prominent of these are probably something like YouTube and cloud. And you might even say that YouTube, to some extent, is advertise-based. But you have so many other products and so many other projects that's burning cash right now, and a few of them will turn into highly profitable businesses. And I just see a lot of asymmetric bets there. So if you look at the owner's earnings for the company, it's just far from the free cash flow because the growth capex is just so high for a company like Google. And of course, for a company with 166 billion revenue, it does take a lot to move the needle. So whenever I refer to a few units to be highly profitable, I'm not talking about a 
speech recognition service that costs 20 bucks a month for 30 million users. But something bigger than that, which at least historically we've seen that the Google has been able to pull off. Last time I pitched Google in 2018, I used 15% as my projection for growth rates over the next five-year period. And since then, we've seen growth in excess of 20% annually. It is tricky to come up with growth projections, as it always is. I guess with my assumptions, I'm probably looking at, I can see Preston is smirking there because I'm just about to say <laughs> that. <laughs> if I use like a Tuesday's growth model, say, call it 20% for the next five years, and then a perpetual growth of 3%, I do arrive at a double-digit return. That is not how it's going to play out. I'm not saying they're going to grow 20%, but I'm also not saying that it's only going to grow 3% after five years. So it's probably going to be somewhere there in the middle. Having known Stig for many years at this point, he's not one to ever brag. But that was Stig very delicately bragging that at a 15% growth rate, he was underneath of something that actually went 20%. And he, <laughs> he called this for many years ago. So I give him a thumbs up and kudos, Stig. You deserve it. Well, thank you, President. I just have to say the, the humble brag came much earlier. That was whenever I said that the last pick actually went up 50%. <laughs> in three months. That was actually my humble brag. And I got no credit for that, guys. (laughs) Anyways, throwing it back over to you, guys, before we move on to the next picks, I don't want to like take all the time here for us today. I actually wanted to throw it all to Toby because I can hear myself saying weird things like 50% growth rates and 20% growth rate. I hear myself pitch the weirdest stocks that I would never do. You know, I, I typically would do all machinery type of low growth kind of thing. And I, I find myself pitching other things. And we do see more traditional value investors buying into big tech, not just as common like you mentioned before, but we do see a lot of that. So Toby, for you being a deep value guy, and I do admittedly recognize the difference between deep value and value. I know it's, it's two different things, but is it because that you have other investors who are now keeping up with the times? Let's just call it that. Or is it a question of value investors having lost their way because they're just under so much pressure to outperform the market and at least not trail the market like many have because they haven't been in these stocks? So how do you see that? I don't like fang the definition because I don't like Netflix because it's negative free cash flow. Tesla's got some problems from a valuation perspective, but I think that there are a group of companies that are very big, very well-established very good moats, excellent returns on invested capital, excellent management. And that's that. I call it Favamar, the list of companies that I gave before. In order to value those companies, you have to come up with some reasonably aggressive assumptions. And that's been the challenge, certainly for guys like me. What I tend to do is look back at historical. So Credit Suisse, I think with Michael Mobison, has produced this document that shows you the rates at which companies have been able to sustain very high growth rate. So when I say rates, it's like, can a company sustain a 15 or 20% growth rate? What are the chances they can do it for a decade, for two decades, for three decades? And you come down to these vanishingly small numbers. So you're making these very low probability bets and you're paying a reasonably high multiple for it. Having said that, if you look at these companies individually, it's probably hard not to see how some of them are not going to do that over a period of time. So the challenge has just been for value guys to sort of be a little bit more aggressive. And those who've done it have done quite well. And those like me who haven't been as aggressive, who tend to be more conservative, haven't done as well. So I think these probably are going to do very well, the underlying businesses. The question is going to be, and this is the question that I always have, just can the valuation sustain? Can the multiple sustain, even though the business is going very well? If you think back to the first dot-com, there were lots of really good companies. And I'm not even talking about the famous dot-com blow-ups. I'm talking about Disney. Lots of big companies came into that peak and they still very, very good companies, but they were punished because their valuations were too high. And it took them a decade to grow back into those valuations. And I think that there's a little bit of that going on now. And I think that it's driven by interest rates being too low. That's all it is. You squash interest rates to zero, then a 3% free cash flow yield becomes very attractive, a growing 3% free cash flow yield. You can't get that anywhere else. So Google is a better option than cash. You've got two challenges. If the interest rates go up, then you've paid too much. I have tended to be conservative and that's hurt me. Thank you for your response to that. I really need to think a lot about this. I think around 7% of my portfolio, I tend to be a quite concentrated investor and Google is actually not my biggest stock pick or stock pick that's much more than 7%, which I don't know if it's good or bad. But 
you really, really have me think about doubling down on something like Alphabet at this price level. So thanks, guys, for the, for the feedback. I really appreciate it. Stig, is just a final comment. I would look at your correlation too. So if it's a large percentage of your portfolio, I know on our TIP finance, we're now doing that where we're showing compared to all your other stock picks, what's the correlation look like in indexes or whatever, how correlated is that to everything else? And it just is another consideration to try to keep it as uncorrelated to the rest of your portfolio if possible. I'm going to go ahead and uh, pitch mine real fast here. Mine is E-Trade. The ticker for this is ETFC. I think anybody who uh, listens to this show knows what E-Trade is and pretty much understands their business model. The thing that attracted me to this one is two things. There's a lot of volatility in the market, which typically means that there's a lot more trading taking place. And the numbers on this for me were really good. When I look at the numbers, the top line more recently or in the last three years hasn't really kind of exploded. It's gone up. It's been good. When I look at the free cash flows on the business, it's doing really quite well. When I go in and I do an intrinsic value on this, I do an IRR on the free cash flows of the business and I do it in a conservative way moving forward, I'm coming up with a valuation that should pump out something in excess of 15% annually. And when I look at everything else that's on the market, I'm not finding too many things other than the finance sector that's kind of pumping out IRRs at this level. And I I really like that E-Trade is more focused in the trading realm than they are in like the JP Morgan type side of finance. So in general, I mean, you look at the revenue to their bottom line, that's 33% margin. They're a very healthy company, good balance sheet. In general, I, I really like it. I think when I look at the momentum, the momentum's in a positive trend. That's all I got. It's pretty simple. I like the numbers. I like the sector that it's in. And I like the conditions, the environmental conditions as far as volatility. I expect there to be a lot of volatility in the coming year. So I think this is going to do well. I think it's a very interesting pick, Preston. And if you look at how they make money, they basically do that three different ways. So they have interest income, they have commissions, and then fees and service charges. And whenever I look at something like the interest income, we have to talk about the low interest rate. I can't help but think that at the rates we are now, can only go up, which would be good for a company like E-Trade. But I've been saying that for five years. You know, I guess most people have thought that we can't go any lower and still it seems like we can do that. And I guess at this point in time, as much as I, I see the low interest rates, I also don't really see them going up. Obviously, there will be some sort of mean reversion eventually, but I don't see it happening anytime soon, especially not what's happening right now with the crisis. So that's probably not where the money is going to come from here anytime soon. If you look at something like commissions, we've seen a lot of disruptions in commissions here lately. That is probably also not a place where you see more money coming in. I'm not saying that it would just be completely gone, but with the new players you've seen in, everyone has been Robin Hood. I think that's a term that I've heard a few times. And it's a bit painful, even for some of the discount brokers who like each rate who came in and like undercut like the big banks, like they're getting disrupted too, the same way that they went into the industry. Then if you look at something like fees and charges, I think that's an interesting one too. And I guess for me, I like to look at it in a very Jeff Bezos type of way. You know, he says that he doesn't want to talk about what's going to change. That's too difficult for him. He's more focused on what will stay the same for a very, very long time. And he uses the example of faster and faster delivery and low prices. So that's a very Amazon way of thinking. If we look at it for a company like this, lower fees, that's one thing. And commoditized financial service, that's another thing. So I guess that's some of the red flags that I see right now for a company like E-Trade. Hari, I saw you have a, had a point there. Great point, Sig. But I just wanted to add, like your comment about Robinhood is quite prescient. I think that's definitely a risk. And especially now, every other company is driving down their commission fee. So how will they expand their margins and their revenue? But one thing I wanted to point out of E-Trade is one of their strengths, which is not well known, is that they are the preferred vendor or brokerage for most of the companies to offer their employee stock auction plans or RSUs, restricted stock units. And that's very sticky. And also the volumes are huge there because of all these companies granting their employees through E-Trade. And I have worked for multiple companies in the Valley and invariably it has been E-Trade. I have not seen any other company. I don't know how they managed it, but somehow they seems to have 
some stickiness there. However, I also wanted to ask a question. There is a lot of rumor about a merger between E-Trade and Morgan Stanley. Is that any factor while you're looking into it? And would, would that be kind of an arbitrage that you're looking for in the short term? I think anytime you see the numbers where these numbers are at, as far as how much margin and profit a buyer could capture, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, they're a prime candidate to be purchased. I mean, just think of all the data that they've got that would benefit as far as a merger for a company like Morgan Stanley. So, yeah, I think that that's definitely something that's in the cards. When you look at the size of this company, it's really kind of on the lower size for a large cap. I think their top line was what, $2 billion or something like that, $2.8 billion. It's small relative to a lot of other things, which makes it another great candidate for a buyout. So when I'm looking at the IRR and the numbers are literally double, triple, quadruple, what you find for other companies' IRRs, and it's that size, I think it's a prime candidate for a buyout. Just to address Stig's comment real fast, when we look at Robinhood, they're selling their order book to high-frequency traders. So is E-Trade exempt from that activity? I don't know. I mean, they they could be doing the same thing. I don't know necessarily their corporate culture or whether they would entertain something like that. I'm sure if things got competitive enough where they really started seeing a hit on their revenue, that that could be another avenue that they could maybe step in and really kind of give Robinhood a run for their money. I don't know. But I think you have a lot of people that are not day traders that have accounts with E-Trade that conduct a trade once a month and for the fee, it's like, so what? It's not a big deal. The, the hassle of them changing all of their information and their data over to another platform is way more friction than they want to deal with for the few trades that they can conduct on an annual basis. I think you bring up a good point. It's definitely too sticky. Something like working with brokers. I mean, you don't want to switch broker if you can avoid doing it. I definitely agree with that. I think what you see right now with brokers is sort of what you've seen in the asset management field is that, no, you're probably not going to, to switch from one vehicle to the next to save 10 basis points, but you just see an overall pressure on profitability. And it's just all becoming more and more commoditized. And I do think that's the effect that's going to hit something like E-Trade more than anything else. Toby? I quite like E-Trade. That's a position that I've held in the fund. And I like it for all of the reasons that you like it, Stig. I think it's beaten up along with all of the other financials. It's still a really, really good business generating lots of money, really solid balance sheet. And it's in a good place, I think, in terms of being fairly low cost compared to all of its, uh, its competitors. The reason that we sold it was because it had this bid from Morgan Stanley. When they set the bid, it was at $58.74. It's 1.0432 Morgan Stanley shares. At the time that we rolled out of it, we just had better opportunities. I see it's trading around $50. So it's an interesting, I just can't do the calculation right now, but it would be worth working out where the bid is right now, what the bid is worth and seeing, because it's one of those things where if the bid goes through, you do very well because you'll get a good little return from here. And if the bid doesn't go through, it's still really undervalued. I completely agree with you, Toby. I'm seeing it the same way. All right, let's go ahead and uh, go over to uh, Toby for your pick. My pick is Berkshire Hathaway. I think it's a popular pick on this podcast. I think everybody knows that Berkshire has underperformed the market for the last sort of, could be 15 years. Basically, it needs no introduction by Warren Buffett, one of the biggest companies. It's like a $475 billion market cap right now. There's a little bit of float liability there. So it ends up being a $540 billion enterprise value. On a valuation front, it's very, very cheap. Questions are, is there something lurking in the portfolio? that from an insurance perspective, and that's why everybody's being cautious about it. The other question is, has Warren Buffett lost it? At 90 years old, is he too old? So the only thing that I would say to the question of Warren Buffett, has he lost it? I think that the greatest trade ever is Warren Buffett buying Apple. And I'll tell you why I think it's the greatest trade ever. Apple was a completely known quantity at the time that he put the money in. And he invested, I think it was $36 billion, which might be one of the biggest acquisitions so probably one of the biggest acquisitions for Berkshire Hathaway, maybe one of the biggest investments ever made in the market. And the stock is up almost three times since he put that position on. It now accounts for almost half of Berkshire Hathaway's book. So I don't think there's any question that he's still the best investor in the market. The company is built by him to be resilient and to perform very well. 
I don't see how you can lose in Berkshire Hathaway at this price. The, really, the only question is, is there something in the, in the book that we don't know about? And I think that you have to trust management. That's really the only thing you can do in insurance. And I don't think there's any management more trustworthy in America, probably, but certainly in insurance. Even though that they are quite old, I think that the company is constructed in such a way that it should continue to do very well into the future. And the fact that Buffett has absolutely nailed this Apple trade recently just is proof that he's still fully in command. And so I'm sort of astonished that Berkshire's as cheap as it is. I think that it's one of the easier positions to put on in this whole market. Whatever happens next, if it's a big drawdown or if it's a big draw up, I think that Berkshire's from a valuation perspective, from a management perspective, and from a quality of business perspective, I think it's one of the, the easiest decisions I've ever had to make. I know when I look at the numbers, Toby, they look very good. I'm not accounting for the look-through earnings, and I'm coming up with a 9 or 10% at the current price. In terms of forward return? Yeah, in, in terms of the IRR that I'm doing on the company. I'm looking at the free cash flows, and I'm making an estimate into the future, and then basically taking the current price and solving for the percent that I think you'll get. Without the look-through earnings, I'm already getting 9 to 10%. So I think when you add those in there, especially if Apple's taking up as much as the balance sheet as we're saying they are, I think that you got a lot there. I think there is risk in the insurance area, especially if this global economy plays out in the very negative direction I think it's going to go in the coming year. I think you're going to have massive insurance claims, and I think there's a lot of risk there. With that said, of all the insurance companies that are out there, I would put Geico at the top of the list just because I know how conservative they look at this and how they're not chasing market share. They're chasing protection for their shareholders at Berkshire and the operational subsidiary of Geico. So I think that all the insurance companies in the whole US have that same risk as Geico. And moving forward, I think that as things continue to play out, they're going to continue to adjust their policies and and try to manage those risks as they pop up. I don't see any one particular risk being able to blow up all the assets under Geico. So we know the one that Warren always talks about at the shareholders meeting, but I don't think that that's something that's very realistic in the grand scheme of things. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. If you're looking for the right franchise concept at the right time, an iFlex Stretch Studio franchise is the business for you. iFlex is the newest franchise concept from the founders of the Joint Chiropractic. With over 200 licenses already awarded to our regional developers, there's never been a better time to own an iFlex franchise in your market. An iFlex Stretch Studio franchise offers its clients the best in professional-assisted stretching for one affordable price in one beautiful location. Even the Mayo Clinic says stretching can increase flexibility and improve your joint's range of motion, helping you move more freely. Prime regional developer opportunities and franchise locations are going fast. Don't miss this opportunity to get into this rapidly growing health and wellness business from the founders of The Joint Chiropractic. Find out more today. Call 888-994-3500. 539 or visit iflexpodcast.com. Call right now, 888-994-3539 or visit iflexpodcast.com. Kyle, you're connected with a ton of different investors and portfolio managers, and you're just really in the know on a lot of these things. How do you keep up with all the day-to-day headlines for your portfolio companies? Yeah, so I used to have a ton of issues with this, and that was until I started using Yahoo Finance. Really? What's so great about it? So Yahoo Finance is awesome. I have my whole portfolio entered and I can easily see all the top headlines to keep up with the recent news. And each day you get an overview of the major global events that might be moving the market. So I'm ready to easily pounce on any opportunities that come my way. What else can you do on Yahoo Finance's platform? They also have a number of cool features, including a tool that lets you link all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings, and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Well, now I know that the audience is really going to love this one. And I actually see they have 90 million monthly active users. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. 
Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. Whenever I look at Berks Hathaway, I think I mentioned during the last mastermind meeting that I just added yet again to my position. So I'm probably not going to come with a huge bear scenario, but I do think that there are a few different important things to note. If you look about the performance and Buffett gets a lot of things thrown at him right now because of the lack of performance. And if you look at the low since 2009, the S&P 500 and Berkshire, they're more or less the same. Like we're looking at something like a what I looked up here was 188% return to the S&P 500, 181 for Berkshire Hathaway. And it's only here very recently that the S&P 500 caught up. I do know that whenever you're looking at Buffett's track record, if that is what you're comparing it to, clearly you might be disappointed. But as we talked about multiple times, there are a bunch of reasons why he cannot keep up with that track record. I kind of feel that Buffett is not getting enough credit. You mentioned the Apple deal before here, Toby. And I think it's important to understand diversification here. Buffett is famous for for saying that diversification is a protection against ignorance and that diversification makes a little sense if you know what you're doing. And a lot of people are saying, well, you know, Apple is like half of your equity portfolios. I feel it's the wrong way of looking at it. I mean, he's having sitting on so much cash. Everyone wants him to put that cash into use. He's doing that. He's outperforming everyone with that position and then people don't like it. I mean, I, I kind of feel, you know, it is sort of like difficult to satisfy anyone. And Buffett has been asked specifically about the diversification part. And you know, what he's just saying is that this is just the third major company aside from insurance and his railway interests. And I guess you can put in something like Berkshire Hathaway Energy too. I mean, it's just another great business that he is running. One deal that he's been doing here over the recent quarter we really like what he did with Dominion, employing close to $10 billion. And we're looking at something around a $1 billion EBITDA. And I know we have these reservations about EBITDA, but that was what was reported, especially with natural gas prices at historic lows. Buying something at, at a 10% multiple, I think it's, it's not screaming cheap, but it looks like it's a good value and a very, very warm buffet type way owning the infrastructure of natural gas. I think he, he hides his stake from 8 to 18% of the transmission on that. I guess my question, sending it back to you, Toby, is how much can this be a part of an investor's portfolio, something like Berkshire Hathaway? Just to, to paint some color around that, you know, I mentioned before that Google was 7% of my portfolio, and it's by far not the largest position I have. That would be something like Berkshire Hathaway. But what would it be for you, Toby? Like, Where would you feel that a retail investor should feel comfortable who really understands Berkshire Hathaway wants it to be a huge part of their portfolio, but how big should and can it get? That's a difficult question to answer because it's always going to depend on the individual and the other opportunities that they have. It's hard. Like in the fund, I run 30 positions long and I just equal weight them, rebalance them on a quarterly basis. If I was to run a more discretionary portfolio, I wouldn't probably run as many positions and I'd have more concentration in some. The thing about Berkshire is that I think that it's a reasonably steady, certain 13 to 17% IRR. Mine's a little bit further north because I include the, uh, the owner earnings. You get $100 billion in cash, you got $100 billion in Apple, you got a $500 billion market cap. So you got the rest of the company is just 
the rest of the businesses that I think are already worth more than where the market cap is. I think it's a it's a pretty easy decision on a valuation basis. The downside is very, very limited and it's run by great managers. It's one of the safer positions that you can put into the portfolio. The question is whether it's going to give you the rip-roaring upside that some people are looking for. If I was to run it discretionarily, I'd put it somewhere between 10 and 15% probably in my portfolio. But then I, I like Favima, the companies that I've listed a few times here. They're harder to own on a valuation basis. I'd be inclined to have much smaller positions in them just so I could track them. I might have a 1% position in lots of those. So I'm already getting looked through into Apple by owning Berkshire. I get a big chunk of Apple and I get it at a discount. I get Buffett managing it. I get all of these other things thrown in for free. I think Berkshire is unlikely to blow up to say the least. So I think it's a reasonably safe position. If you're going to size one up, this is the one to size up. All right, Hari, talk to us about your pick here, Brookfield Property REIT. I cringe when I propose this as my pick this week, but the reason I'm pitching this is sometimes you got to go where nobody wants to go and Brookfield property kind of is right in the middle of it. It's basically um, one of the largest operators of globally diversified quality assets. They include office and retail. And the problem is retail because they have around 41% of their assets in retail. They have around 85 billion under management, assets under management. They have been growing their assets under management quite healthily. In 2015, there were 30 billion assets under management and today it's around 85 billion. Obviously, I think Toby would be uh, probably looking into it too because it has deep value written all over it. Toby, correct me if I'm wrong. I do have some concerns with, with Brookfield, mostly in relation to corporate governance. I do see that they're trading at a deep discount to there. However, I think the main concern is they do have good financial liquidity position that they say. They have around $6 billion in cash and under on credit lines. They feel they can withstand this one year or more of downturn. Their tenants in office space are doing okay. Their average lease period there is around nine years and 93% of them have a long-term lease in office space and most of their tenants are doing okay there. But I think their retail is hurting. Their FFO obviously has declined compared to last year at $1.39, $1.39 this year compared to $1.48. This is not including their resale of their investment. So there are a couple of unique things about Brookfield Property Partners is that unlike most REITs, they engage in one, developing their property into what they call as townships. So if they have just malls, they would build townships around them and then basically develop it and then sometimes even resell some of their properties they already have so there is a constant flow of funds from the sale of their assets as well so that's one thing that i found to be interesting i think for me the number one concern would be um, their leverage high leverage that's like 13.8 x debt to ebitda and it has been increasing their payout ratio is quite high if if I include the realized gains from the sale of assets, it's around 95% or close to 100%. But if I exclude it, it's way more than 100%. There is also a component of fee that their parent, Brookfield Asset Management, charges. Like their base fee is 0.5% of asset under management. Then there is an equity enhancement fee, which is 1.25%. And then there is incentive distribution fee. So there's a lot of fee that one has to go through and that kind of you know eats up into the returns that one makes and conflict of interest because Brookfield asset management owns it and their fee is such that it's kind of tilted towards growth they get more share of the growth and hence they might be incentivized to take more risks so that's some of the concerns i had i think in conclusion i wanted to bring it up here more to get an opinion from you guys is it worth looking at this price point it's more than 50 percent down it used to be like close to 20 dollars beginning of the year and it's now around 11 dollars it was eight dollars something few months back so obviously it has come up and the brookfield has also offered to buy back their share at 12 dollars and then they recently sent out tender to all their existing shareholders so obviously they are seeing value in it so they're confident to buy it back um well i i was thinking the same about ibm when they were buying back their shares so uh, <laughs> disclaimer uh, 
Brookfield is one of those ones that is heavily discussed in the value community because it's uh, it's cheap. It's run by guys who are operator compounder type investors. So the long side is always that there's a sum of the parts NAV valuation that you can come up with that makes it look very cheap. And the criticism of that is that you base it a lot on what Brookfield tells you the asset's worth and they tend to be maybe a little bit aggressive with their valuations. And it's very rare that you see Brookfield trade close to NAV. I don't think it's traded at a premium to NAV because they are a little bit more bullish in their in their own assessment of those numbers. The fact that they're buying it back means that it's probably undervalued. But the big risks, I think, are it's got a lot of leverage. You're kind of betting that interest rates stay very low. And the other one is that the corporate structure that they have is just mind-bending. Every time I try to go through it, it just puts me to sleep. I can't figure it out. And I've seen, even reading somebody else's assessment of, it's this interlocking web of multiple companies that make it very difficult to work out who owns what and why it's structured that way. It's one of those things where I see that sort of complexity and it just makes the hairs on the back of my neck, gets my hackles up a little bit, makes me a little bit nervous. That, I mean, why is it that complicated? Why have you built it that way? It's possible their answer is just ad hoc and it's, things have come up and we've had the money there. We've bought it and that's what's created this structure. Not saying that there's anything going on. It's just whenever you find something going on in these companies where there's some sort of fraud or self-dealing or something like that, they also have very complicated corporate structures because it's a way of hiding what's going on. I don't know in relation to Brookfield, it's just hard to get a bead on where it is. So the, the complexity of the structure and the leverage and some of the questions about the valuation of their own assets make it too hard basket for me. I just can't see the the valuation on the free cash flow side. So you were talking the net asset values, which is just your assets minus your liabilities divided by the shares. And so what it really comes down to is, are those values that are being listed on the balance sheet really the valuations that we're going to see moving forward into the future? And when I think about those valuations of those properties, so much of the valuation is is dependent on the free cash flows that those properties are able to kick off. I know from looking at our screener, our TIP Finance, when I'm looking at the small cap companies, the momentum status on all of these small cap companies are bad, really bad. When we look at the indexes going up, we're really talking about a couple companies that are driving these indexes. And all this this five to six trillion dollars worth of printing that's taken place, it's all nesting itself into these these tech companies. And when you look at the smaller businesses that make up the leaseholders and the people that are fulfilling or sitting in these buildings, all those small businesses, they're getting crushed. My expectation moving forward into the coming year is that that's going to continue to persist. And if you have a lot of vacancies and you don't have them filling these buildings, my opinion is that there's impairment on the valuation of those buildings. And so like that's my real concern on a fundamental level of the underlying assets on this company is that I think they're overstated. When I look at the valuations on this, it really doesn't excite me all that much. I see that there has been a little bounce from the the March low. It has had a little bit of a bounce. So there might be something that I'm missing and like Toby said, the complexity of the corporate governance and, and what's actually sitting on the balance sheet is the part that's really hard for me to understand when I'm looking at when I'm doing a quick glance. And I obviously haven't spent a ton of time researching this, but just from a very high level standpoint, those are my concerns. Generally, Hari, whenever everyone is running away screaming for something, I'm always curious. I guess that's something that just comes with the territory whenever you have value investor. What I've also come to realize, especially over the last few years, is that there's often a reason why people are running away screaming. And the counter argument to that, we had Ian Formiglion here last week from Crown Street, and he talks about how space is the new luxury. And that comes both with something like the malls that I think have 122 now, and they have 134 office properties. And I see that argument, and anyone should definitely listen to a lot more what he's saying than, than what I'm saying. But I think what goes into this is that, yes, space might be the new luxury, but you also have to account for not just the impairment. And Preston was talking about the redevelopment cost because so many of those buildings, they can't be used the same way. So even if space is the new luxury, it would have to burn a lot of cash before you see cash coming back in. All right, guys. Well, I think that concludes all of our remarks. I want to give Toby and Hari a chance to tell people where they can learn more about you guys and uh, check out some of your stuff. My fund is called the Acquirers Fund, ticker ZIG. 
And I've also started managing another call, the Deep Value Fund, the ticker is D-E-E-P. That's going to be a small and micro cap deep value fund. Deep value is very out of favor at the moment. So if you're a mean reversion contrarian type investor, then take a look at deep value. It's, it's really beaten up at the moment. I also have a website, acquirusmultiple.com, and I'm on Twitter at Greenbacked, G-R-E-E-N-B-A-C-K-D. Hari? Thanks, Christian, Toby, and Stig, for your feedback. Yes, I knew that this is a, something that I was on the fence, and that's the reason I brought it up here to kind of, you know, put it on the dissection table. You're right. There is a reason why everybody is running away from this. My reason for looking into it is, as Stig said, anytime when everybody's running away, it's time to just give a closer look. The positives I see is most of the bad news is out. But at the same time, we don't know how long this will last. And Tristan, you brought up net asset values might go down. And Stig, you were talking about how much capital they'll have to put to redevelop those properties in case things change. So there is risk. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't bet my farm on this. But thank you. This was a great conversation and feedback. All right, Hari, tell folks where they can uh, learn more about you. As usual, people can find me on bitsbusiness.com, my blog, and my Twitter handle, Hari Rama. Happy to engage in constructive conversations. All right, guys. As we're letting Toby and Hari go, we're now transitioning into playing a question from the audience, and this question comes from Stremek. Here we go. Hi, Preston. Hi, Steve. My name is Przemek, and I'm calling you from United Kingdom. First of all, big thank you for your podcast. I've been with it since the beginning. I love to see your journey as investors. It's, it's fantastic. I've got a question about stock dilution. So when I invest and I do fundamental analysis, one thing I don't understand why sometimes companies like Tesla issue more shares. So essentially, they dilute my shareholding. And the shares actually go up the next day and then continue to go up. So um, how to factor this into fundamental analysis, the risk that the company will be diluting your equity by issuing more shares to investors? And um, is that something that's captured in some of the fundamental models of investing? Thank you so much for your podcast. Appreciate it. Bye. I think it's a great observation you make. Now, Tesla in itself is a tricky example. And we often talked about here on the show how Tesla sort of goes against everything we learned about value investing. For instance, Tesla took over the position from Toyota here recently as the world's most valuable car maker. And that was not by having any earnings they actually haven't had since it was founded in any fiscal year. But it's been through issuing stocks and taking on billions of dollars in debt. So I'm not sure if that is the base case study to understand what is fundamentally happening when a company issues stock. But what does happen whenever a company issues stock is that the individual stock price doesn't have to go down in price by default. Because what it means is that the company raises capital and they will also have more owners to share the ownership of that company. But again, it's from a higher base. So the effect can both be positive and negative on the individual share. And you can, of course, bring up the argument that it's better if the company can generate cash flow and it doesn't have to finance it through issue of more equity. But keep in mind that companies are at very different stages. You might have a growing company who needs it to turn profitable very soon, or you might have a situation like with airlines who are a mature industry and used to be very profitable, but now due to COVID-19 is not. And we all knew that they needed capital and then the terms that got actually weren't that bad and the market reacted positive to that. So you have to divide it up and say that in the first place, no, it was not great that they needed capital. But at the time that they made the announcement, the stock was already punished hard. Everyone expected it. So everything else equal, it was actually a not as bad as it could be scenario, which the market liked. And it's also important to understand that if we use the case study of airlines, the fundamental value of airline stocks is lower than 2019 but not because of the dilution of the shares, but because the missing revenue and the bleak outlook. You can even make the argument that if airlines didn't issue shares, they couldn't get loans and then they would go bankrupt. So dilution of stock, as mentioned, is not really a good or a bad thing per se, but it really depends on the specific circumstances for that deal. 
And it could even be so, though this happens more often privately than publicly, that you have companies seeking capital, not just for the sake of capital, but as an add-on also to get new investors in with know-how. But really to your question about, is the dilution of shares accounted for in valuation models? Most valuation models use a per share basis. And so it's a great point to ask what happens if you now have more shares. But as I mentioned before, the answer is a little more complex because it does depend on which value the company would have after the issue of more shares and whatever happens whenever that equity has been utilized. So that's why if the market deems that in a positive light, you can see that you actually have the individual share price even after the announcement would go up in price. Tremek, I'll be honest with you. I don't really have too much to add beyond what Stig said because he really kind of covered all the bases. For people that might be looking at this with a fresh set of eyes and have no experience with it, I would just tell you at a very general and basic level, uh, when a company's going through this, they're taking uh, newly issued equity and they're just turning it into a currency. They're turning it into cash in order to subsidize uh, their inability to earn free cash flows. That's really kind of the essence of what it's at. So whether they can raise capital through the issuance of debt or they're going to do it through the issuance of, of more stock, that's pretty much what they're getting at. And so when you're thinking about the valuation on that, on that playing out or you're concerned about a company doing that in the future, the, the main thing you got to really look at is, are they do, do they have free cash flows? And if they don't, well, then they're going to have to probably go down one of those two paths in the future. So that's probably a good indicator as to whether it is or isn't going to happen. With respect to Tesla specifically, man, there there is no way <laughs> Stig or I can provide you any type of advice as to why you might be seeing some of the things you're seeing on Tesla, because this is a this is a case study of case studies as to how this stock keeps moving and all the intangible things that the market seems to value on this one that I have continued to be surprised with. So I can't really add much value in in critical thinking and some ideas on that one. So uh, I'll leave it at that. But Tremek, outstanding question. I really enjoy questions like this. And for asking such a great question, we're going to give you a free subscription to TIP Finance, where it'll help you do intrinsic value calculations. It'll uh, assist you in many different areas for momentum investing and helping you filter and find good value picks. So we're really excited to be able to give you that subscription for free. And uh, for anybody else out there, if you want to get your question played on the show, go to asktheinvestors.com. If your question gets played on the show, you get a free subscription to TIP Finance. All right, guys. Preston, I really hope you enjoyed this episode of the Investors Podcast. We will see each other again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.